Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, ambassador of 805 Connect and your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University's School of Management and Tolman and & Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and encouragement. And thanks to our podcasting partner, Pull String Press, for this great studio, and to Patrick, my co-host. Hey, Patrick. Hi, Mark. How are you today? I'm great. We are in store for another fantastic conversation. Uh, with us for the next 45 minutes is Trip Hawkins. Hey, Trip. Good morning. Well, I don't know if you've officially been welcomed to Santa Barbara, but I'd like to officially welcome you to Santa Barbara. Do I get a key? Uh, there's a box of them uh, <laughs> that we've got for you. Fantastic. And so how long have you been in town? Well, I've been uh, living here officially about seven months now. And you, um, I, I, I like to think you escaped the gravitational pull of the Silicon Valley. That, you know, that's a very good metaphor. Mm. When we had an opportunity to talk and we talked about what got you here and you're at a, a time in life, I mean, you're not retired, you're an entrepreneur, we're not allowed to retire, uh, but what was the draw to come to this part of the state? Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, I'm originally from Southern California oh. and a lot of my family ended up in the Bay Area one way or another and in the last few years a migration returning to the South began. And I realized that my last two companies had most of their employees overseas anyway, so that right. no matter what I was likely to be doing in the future, I could probably do it wherever I wanted. Right. And I just wanted to be closer to family and delighted to uh, have ended up here in Santa Barbara. Yeah, it, this is a, a great place to end up. There's a lot of people, though, <clears throat> that are starting up here, right? There's a huge startup community. I think that you, you've been nosing around that as well. It's fantastic. Yeah, the whole region is kind of exploding right now. We, we can talk about that on the show quite a bit, what's going on with that. And so I want to dig in. I'm going to dig into some of that and where your particular interests are. So uh, you went to Harvard. Yes. And then w what other education did you do besides the School of Hard Knocks? Yeah, I uh, went straight from there to Stanford Business School. I come from a very educated family, so mm. that was just a value that uh, I grew up with. I think, in hindsight, considering what I ended up doing, I could have just as well dropped out. You know, there's obviously a lot of uh, famous tech and game industry people that didn't get a lot of formal education. When you're out on the absolute frontier, yep. nobody has any relevant experience. Yep. And it's really more about your ideas, uh, your drive, you know, your, your passion, you know, your willingness to make tremendous effort so that commitment to doing the work yeah so it was actually challenging for me because of my family background I felt like I should get a certain amount of school done but I really was itching to get out there and sure. you know, the last few years that I was in school I was kind of working full-time on the side what were you doing what was that first job well this is uh, uh, how I came to Silicon Valley in the first place and there were a series of, of kind of amazing serendipitous events. Luck? Well, it started when I was uh, at home in San Diego, and my father had a colleague that was a brilliant engineer who ended up working for one of the very early arcade game companies. Mm. And one day we went over to his house, and he had bought a computer kit. This was in the early 1970s, before, uh, before anything, really. 
and this kit, uh, you could build a deck PDP-8 with a bunch of oh. flashing lights. Oh. And wow. he took, he'd hooked it up to an extremely crude, slow printer that had a very clunky keyboard built into it. And because I had already by that time decided I wanted to make a games for a living, seeing the computer, it was kind of an aha moment where I realized, okay, we're going to put the games in the computer. Right. Because the kind of games that I wanted to play myself were simulation games where you had some aspect of something fairly realistic that because it had simulation components and mm -hmm, statistics, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it had authenticity. And then you could learn from that experience and also be the hero. That's really what I wanted to make. And I could tell that the computer would be the tool that would enable it. And somehow I just knew that there would be this thing that became known as Moore's Law. Yep. Because I could tell this clunky thing wasn't going to be it, but I, I just somehow knew it was going to get way better and it was going to happen pretty fast. How old were you? So I was in high school at that point. Got it. Uh, not too long after that, I've had, I had a summer job in Santa Monica working for a think tank that was spun out of the RAND Corporation. I, I thought RAND immediately, but what was that think tank? It was called System Development Corporation. It had I, thousands of employees in Santa Monica. They did, they did these big computer projects for different branches of the government, you know, like satellite weather you're systems. You're still in high school? Um, now I'm in college. Okay. And uh, one day a colleague of mine came back from lunch and he was all excited because he'd been in Paul Heiser's uh, store, which was called The Computer Store. Oh, wow. And again, I don't know anything, right? This right. guy comes in, he says to me, you're not going to believe this. I was just in a retail store and you can rent a KSR 33 teletype terminal for $10 an hour and take it <laughs> wow. home oh. and have a computer, have access to the mainframe computer from your home. Wow. So that wow. kind of blew my mind. Right, and sure. By the way, we're talking history here because it turns out that was the very first retail computer store on planet earth no kidding <laughs> so here i am in santa monica wow. i've got this colleague wow. and i'm and i'm wow. getting all excited about yeah, this because it's clearly a step on on that curve i was looking looking yep. for yeah and then he says well shoot trip that's not all <laughs> i just read the other day that this company invented a computer on a chip mm. so again we're talking 1975 sure, when intel sure. announced that they'd actually crammed all the primary functions onto one semiconductor is the yep. birth of the microprocessor. Yep. So literally, I, I went back to my desk after running into this guy, and I sketched out a napkin. Okay, how fast are these computers going to get into homes? Right. And mm. when will there be enough of them in homes that I can right. make games for them and make <laughs> right. a living doing that? And I decided that the answer to that question was 1982, which is seven years out. Wow. And I, I basically planned those next seven years to get to the point where I could start my own game software company. Then I finished school. And again, you talk about serendipity because my family background is telling me, man, you know, you, you don't know enough about business. And the right mm, way to learn about mm, business mm. is in school. Of course, you know, we all know that you really learn much faster right. in the real world. Right. But that was the culture I came from. So I got into both Harvard and Stanford business schools, but I just had a very painful breakup with a, a girlfriend and she was in Boston. And I just wanted to get the hell out of Boston. Stanford is <laughs> as far away as you could get, right? So really, that was the primary reason wow. I ended up uh, discovering Silicon Valley. Because, you know, of course, you, you move out and, and you're going to Stanford, but there isn't any housing right around Stanford. Right. It, it, you know, it's, uh, uh, there's some really precious, scarce housing there, but you have to be kind of in the know and know sure. who, who's got it and plan advance to get it. But if, you, if you're this fresh off the boat, you end up living in Mountain View. 
mm-hmm. and then you drive down the Foothill Expressway, yep. Yep. Uh, which, which is now considered kind of you know part of the the heart of uh, Silicon Valley. You go right through the Stanford Industrial Park, yep. right back, yep. right right past the offices of the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, yep. you know, park. park. Yep. So here I am in Mountain View, and right nearby, literally a few blocks away, there's a bite shop. Oh. The very first. B-Y-T-E. Yes, the very first chain of mm. computer stores was the bite shop. Mm. And they put their first store a few blocks from my house. I mean, <laughs> it's wow. almost like God <laughs> is just putting bugs on my windshield and just trying to drop whatever hits right. he can about guiding me down this path. So, like, there's just too many strange coincidence mm-hmm, ac- mm-hmm. Uh, accidents. Okay, then uh, I start going to school. And one day I'm in the library, and a guy had gone into the copy room to make a copy of uh, a research document. And he left a few pages. Uh oh. Okay. And I picked up those pages. <sighs> And it was a study of the first generation of Pong-type game machines. Oh, right. And it was a study made by Creative Strategies, a, oh. a, a company down in San Jose. Huh? And I thought, you got to be kidding me. Somebody's actually writing studies about this already? And I'm thinking, man, I should get a summer job with them and uh-huh. get them with to... With Creative Strategies. And get them to let me write a study about the personal computer. So I go, uh-huh. down, to, I go down to meet them. And they, and they basically say, uh, what are you talking about? Uh, we've never heard of personal computer. What is that? Right. Mm. So now we're talking 1977. Right. <clears throat> and I try to explain it to them. They say, look, um, we got all these big companies that are our clients that buy our research. There's no demand for that. We don't have anybody who wants to know about personal computers. However, right. we do have people who want to know about computer printers, you know, big hunking printers wow. that, you know, are giant rooms that print out stuff for huge companies. Will you write a study about that? And if that goes well, then we'll let you write a study about this other thing. Okay. Sure. So, of course, I wrote that study in the summer about the printers. It became their best-selling study. They were very happy about it. Oh, great. They gave me permission to write about personal computers, Mm. and I started working on it right away. And that was kind of what I did in my second year of school while I was finishing school. Hmm. So one thing leads to another, and naturally – you get you have an excuse now to be contacting the nascent, you know, little personal computing companies because you're doing research, and uh, and then I sent them all a mailing about the study, thinking, okay, they're going to be willing to talk to me because they want to know what I say in the study about them and about their competitors. And then one day the phone rings in my little house in Palo Alto, and it is Steve Jobs on the phone. No kidding. And he's really pissed. Oh, because he got this little flyer. And it says that Radio Shack is the market leader. Uh-oh. And it's true. But he didn't like it. And they'd been running an ad campaign that said that they had the best-selling personal computer, the Apple II, which, of course, I had seen a few months prior at the very first West Coast Computer Fair when it made its debut. Yep, yep, yep. And, again, that was a momentous event. That was the very sure. first uh, show like that. Uh, that product really stud- stood out. I came out of that show thinking, wow, uh, that product is from the future. I mean, it's almost like some, some spaceship <laughs> right. flew in and put that product in the midst of all of this ordinary right. human mortal stuff that's not going to go anywhere. That thing is the future. Anyway, so Steve starts complaining about the study and you know barking at me. <clears throat> and I said, well, I'd be happy to come by the office and show you the study and we can talk about it. <laughs> and that's how I got an Apple. And what did you do? What, what? I've got like 800 questions, but what? <laughs> I've what, only got two over here. <laughs> so what? Uh, what job did? So 
Do you pitch Tim to hire you directly? So when I went down there to interview, of course, I met with Steve, but I also met his his boss. So, you know, the two Steves got all the publicity. Right. But they had to bring in some money. Yep. And they obviously needed some adult supervision. Yep. <laughs> and that guy, Mike Morkola, came in right, and sure. he was the chairman of the board. Yep. He was yep. the VP of marketing, which was his discipline that he yep. liked to do. He didn't want to run it. So we brought in a crony of his, Mike Scott, who became known as Scotty in the company to avoid confusion between sure. you know two guys named Mike. And uh, that was the triumvirate that really ran the company. It was Scotty, Markula, and Steve. And Steve didn't have a hell of a lot of authority. He was kind of the guy that was running through the building with his hair on fire. And Scotty was the kind of manufacturing operations expert. And then Markula really was the... Uh, adult supervision, mm -hmm, the, the mm -hmm. mature guidance, but also quite visionary. And on my second day in the job, and I, was, I, I came in reporting to him, and he said, look, Tripp, you know something about business. And I'm thinking to myself, "Sure, I don't know squat. Well, but you, you got a thinking, degree. You just thinking, you got a degree in it. I mean, yeah. yeah, as if. Yeah, right. And he says, I want you to find out, figure out how we can sell these to businesses. Now, you have huh. to remember, when I started at Apple, there's 25 office workers in the whole entire company. And there's another 25 guys in the back room assembling about 50 of these Apple II hobby machines a month. There's nothing you can do with them. Right. You know, there's no peripherals, there's no storage, there's no printing, there's no a way to, you know. You could play lemonade stand. Well, if you, if you programmed it yourself in basic, yes. but every time you turn off the machine, it, the program would disappear. Exactly. <laughs> so by that time, Someone had cobbled together a way to take a conventional audio cassette tape, right, and use an A to yeah. D, D to A converter to trans, you know, to play the song off the tape and have that little bit stream of sound get converted into digital information. And you know, some of the time it would actually work. Yep. You know, so that's kind yep. of what you did. Yep. You you could either write programs in assembly code or you could write in BASIC, and then you could try to save them on tape and then hope hope that after you saved it and brought it back in the next day. It, was all there. And so, of course, the first thing I did was say, well, uh, let's see if uh, anybody, any business people have actually bought these things. Right, because now that's your thing is go find them. And that was like the first step. And I, I went and found the customer service person and I said, hey, uh, do we have any warranty cards? And there was a little stack of these cards. Right. The, the very right. birth of Apple is like, these are the, this is the entire customer base that we know about, this handful of pieces of paper. And I go through it, and originally I was going to send a questionnaire out, and I realized, shoot, there's only 13 that have a business name. Right. I'll just call them up. And those were mind-boggling conversations. Like Every one of those people was a futurist. Sure. So you got this dreamer. He's a plumber, and he goofs around with a machine. He plays a, uh, there was a simple little basic game called Star Trek, which yep. had uh, char you know, text characters yep. on the screen, and you could try to target the yep. Klingon ships and so on. And that's all he did with it. He'd spent maybe $2,000 on this to Star Trek that. game. <laughs> but his ambition was to write a complete accounting system for his uh, business. Okay, now, where did that go? Was there a yes and to that? He was the founder of some... No, 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 he was just a plumber. Just a guy. <laughs> but those, a, that was, just, those were but, the initial customers, were the dreamers yep. that could keep up with the dreams that, that we had. And uh, at that point, I embarked on basically... Uh, How are you, 24 now? Uh, roughly, yeah. I embarked on the invention of the office desktop market, hmm. and I, I was the uh, you know business thinker and product and marketing 
thinker that drove all that. So a lot of the stuff that led to, you know, things like the Mac, the mouse, uh, Microsoft Windows, laser printing, I was the guy who got all that going and was kind of the driving force behind it. Mm. So, you know, little things like the fact that I hired and had report to me the first guy at Apple that had previously worked at Xerox. I got mm, him mm, to bring Park. I got him right. to bring the first mouse into the company. So the mythology mine, though is that Steve stole that and what you're telling me cuz there was the you know there's the mythology that they went, they saw it, they came back, said we could do it better, but you actually hired the guy. Yeah, and by the way, when you talk about they went, I was in the car. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, you of course, went. we went. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, just to parse that a little bit, the uh, Xerox Alto was a machine that Xerox had built from a, from a research standpoint, mm-hmm. and they'd experimented with a lot of ideas mm-hmm. on it. So they hooked up a mouse to it. They had a thing that you could use with your left hand called the cat. Nobody hears about it because it was a stupid idea. <laughs> it was just another another user interface contraption, like a little keyboard with a few piano keys on it. The mouse, by the way, Xerox didn't even invent. It was invented by Doug Engelbart when he was at Timeshare. And it, and it had progressed to the point where Xerox thought it was an interesting idea, so they had played around with it. And they also had bitmap, bitmap graphics, but again, they didn't invent that either. In fact, even the Apple II had bitmap graphics. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was the first personal computer that did. Uh, then, then you have other things like uh, Smalltalk. So again, that was a Xerox software uh, project that used pop-up windows. Right. It didn't have the kind of comprehensive sense of windows the way we think about them on the PC uh, and, and how Apple you know, use them and pull down menus and all that. They just had little things that could pop up on the screen and you'd have three simple choices about some action. And so that that was certainly very clever. So when we saw Smalltalk running on the Alto, uh, we got pretty excited about it because we just just liked the uh, organic human experience of it. It seemed like a more natural way for a human being to use a computer. Uh, Among other things that Xerox Park didn't have, they didn't use icons. And they, they made relatively little use of graphics. So we went back and you know, started to figure out what we wanted to do. And that was, one of the, that was one of the investigations that we did. But there were plenty of others. And we, you know, I, I was looking at all the word processing products, all of the small business computers, you know, going to trade shows and industry events and you know, trying to figure out, well, who's doing something interesting? What are the practical ideas? And if you look at the mouse, for example, we took that Xerox mouse apart and figured out that the parts cost of that thing was about $400. Oh, no kidding. So we actually ended up going to uh, a buddy of mine from uh, school that was partners with David Kelly, who later became pretty famous for IDEO. And we said, hey, you know, we need a mouse that has a $15 right. cost of materials, so figure out something else. And they invented the uh, optical mouse, which was you know, a... a a brilliant, elegant uh, design idea that functioned better, lasted longer, and it actually had a affordable cost. This we we talk about the the collision between the aesthetic choice and the feat the function choice, right? It's it's got I've got to move this mouse around, but uh, we, we were talking earlier about the fan inside uh, the computer and get rid of the fan, and then the thing, you know, burns up. Where did that? 
insane focus on the design aesthetic come from? Was that a collective thing? Or? It became a collective thing. Steve Jobs drove it, and a lot of it was just inherently who he was. But he, like me, had the good fortune to bump into some other people that embodied it. Right. So uh, Waz was an extremely elegant you know, electrical engineer who, when he designed a circuit system, could figure out a way to just do it more cleverly and elegantly. So one of the first breakthroughs of those early PCs was using floppy disks for storage. Yes. And you could buy an off-the-shelf floppy disk from the inventors of it, Shugart, but you had to then come up with a controller card with a bunch of electronics that allowed it to communicate with your computer. Correct. And uh, the state-of-the-art, when, when Apple first started, when we started working on our floppy disk drive, the state-of-the-art was uh, a board that had about 35 integrated circuits on it. Was designed one that had 13, hmm. and that had almost 50% more capacity. Huh. Uh, meanwhile, the guy that was the analog engineer in the early days at Apple, a guy named Rod Holt, he designed a uh, uh, power supply that gen did not generate heat. Really? So, so Rod Holt was a really brilliant analog engineer, and Waz was a really brilliant el uh, electrical engineer. <clears throat> and when you have two guys like that that are already skilled in that way and think that way, and, you, and they're collaborating with Steve, and Steve, Steve was especially focused on the human being that was going to use it and right. what experience they were right. going to have. But, the, but those guys were helping inspire him with what you could do. So it, it obviously was possible to have a machine that didn't have a fan if you were clever about it. Right. right. And, uh, and, and in fact, for several years, we did not have any, any fans. So going all the way back, you, in the very beginning, you said it was luck, right? This, this, there was school, you, you know, you go to a friend's dad's house, you, um, you go to the, the, there's the think tank, the napkin, all of these things happen, these luck, lucky things. How much of it was your ability to recognize and connect the dots? Because a lot of time opportunity comes up and it just passes us by. I think, first of all, California is a very special place. Santa Barbara is a very special place within California. It was obviously dumb luck that I was born in California. <laughs> okay. The, Calif the culture of California obviously is going to support me eventually discovering a lot of these things. I think the route that I took had more of a straight line and fewer digressions because of some additional luck, but... You know, I, I had things I was trying to figure out. I, I would have found my way to Silicon Valley one way or the other. It just, you know, it just, it was that funny was how, how efficiently it happened. Although, again, if I dropped out of school a few years earlier, I would have probably had, a, had room for other kinds of digressions and gotten there even sooner. So you come into this job and it's, we need to figure out how to sell them to business. And then you work backwards from that. And we need printers. We need storage. We need all, there's all of these other things to make that vision come true. Yet, here's a guy who, when he's 13 or 14, loves games and wants to bring games to the masses, yet business and games are antithetical to one another. How, how did you, where did games show up for you? I think a lot of people, when, they, when they're coming out of college and looking for a first job, they're imagining, yeah, I don't really know what I want to do yet. I'm going to try this. I'll probably do it for a year, maybe okay. two. 
And that was kind of the attitude I have at Apple was I, I wanted to go work in a company that would help sell machines into the home. And I also wanted to learn more about how to run my own business by hanging around other people that had right. more experience running a business. But Apple just took off. Hmm. And it got really exciting, and I had a lot of responsibility, and I was, and my learning rate was really spectacular because there were so many really talented people right. at Apple, and I was always in the room. Anything, if there was ever anything really interesting going on, I was right there. And so I stayed for four years, hmm. and in that four-year period, we went from fifty employees to four thousand, and went from wow. you know, you know, a, a couple million dollars a year in revenue to a billion. And and uh, as that happened. I've got more and more restless because mm, I knew mm, I wasn't mm. doing what I right. originally set out to do. And yeah, I got I got good at understanding these kinds of machines and applications and the office market, et cetera. But it wasn't really my passion. So when was the, because I'm really interested in the, the mind of the entrepreneur and that thing that, it, it, was there a spark that it's like, no, I need to now go do this next thing and Get, continue on my path. Yeah, so as a game designer, I had made a football game when I was a teenager, and it was a game that you could play uh, almost like a card game. It had cards oh. and dice and oh. charts. I, I would say it was the, the sports equivalent of Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> sure, sure. And I borrowed $5,000 from my father and got the entrepreneurial experience of a lifetime. I lost all the money, uh, you know, ran out of gas. And uh, of course it was painful because my, my artistic endeavor failed, but I loved it. Mm. So that, that was, that was when I realized, man, uh, I got to do this again. Right. Uh, this is me. This is high school. Yeah, actually, that even started like in middle school. I mean, that, that, oh. the, the, the process of inventing that game and refining yeah. it took a few years. And then uh, by the time I actually brought it out, brought it to market, I think I was you know, a freshman in college by that time. But you were also able to, to pitch that strong enough to, to, to get an investor, even though it was your father. But like, so you must have had, been able to articulate that vision to, to him of, of how. Yeah, I think that's actually probably something that uh, anybody who's an artist and anybody that's an entrepreneur. You can you know you don't you're not you don't need to be taught how to do that. Yeah, how to pitch your your your. No, you, you you've got your passion. You're executing something in a very clever way, and you really believe in it, and you have some ability to articulate it. Do you think that's part of the DNA of a successful entrepreneur? That the, the pitch that that the pitch DNA or that art communication DNA? Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, I don't really think of it as a sales pitch. It's more mm. a, the way in which people can recognize that you're special and that you're up to something that's interesting and that you're really passionate about it and are not gonna give up easily. I think those are the things that you pick up from when you first talk to someone right. who's, who's a real entrepreneur. Right, you get it, I mean you can, it just, They can they, be really, they can be unwashed like Steve Jobs, they can be really sure. clumsy, they can be unattractive, uh, they can not understand any of the major points about the selling cycle and how to overcome <laughs> objections. And, you know, they don't have to know any of that stuff. You know, they don't have to be trained in anything. They just have to be um, almost like a religious fanatic. And then the thing that they're a fanatic about needs to resonate with that audience. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, creative people, artists, entrepreneurs that have bad ideas. Yep. So those don't get funded. Yeah. Uh, last Apple question. You know, in the last couple of years, there's been 
you know, there's the books, now out the movie. What's it like being one of the guys who you're in the car <laughs> and seeing all of that? Yeah, I actually feel a responsibility to tell these stories. Oh. And I felt that for a long time. I mean, you have to imagine, you know, that I was at Apple a long time ago. Right. And while I was there, and soon after I left there, I would meet people and I would talk to them and they would say, man, you should write a book. Hmm. But I was running a company, I right. was too busy. Right, <laughs> right. And then I built Electronic Arts and people would hear about that and they said, man, you should write a book. Right. But I was too busy for that. I know. So it really ha- wasn't until this year that I could finally say, okay, I'm not too busy anymore. So I'm, I've started this year to work on that and you know, a lot of it is uh, the lore. Right. And over the years, you know, over 100 books have come out <clears throat> about the PC industry, and most of them mention me or quote me. And again, it's kind of annoying because they get stuff wrong. Right, right. And you can see this in terms of someone like Waz, uh, his editorial comments on the various books and films, and, and some of them are just horrible. So you know, at some point, you want to set the record straight. Yep. And, and part of the untold story about Steve is uh, his dark side and the, the sadness around the fact that he was never really personally transformed by, by his experience. You know, he continued all the way up until his death to have some of the same bad habits that he'd always had. And, and I think there was an unhappiness in him that he never resolved. And the, early on, people would have an experience with him at the office in a meeting, and then they would look, look at me after the meeting and talk to me and say, what is the deal with that guy? Hmm. And I would say, look, uh, his biological parents gave him up for adoption. Adoption. I'm convinced that Steve wants to make so much noise that he stands out above all of the rest of humanity, right. that his biological parents recognize that it's him and address their shame for giving him up. I think that's his purpose. That's what's really driving him. That actually happened, and then after he, rec- you know, after he made connections with his sister, his mother, his father, et cetera, some of them he became friendly with, but the last several years of his life, he did not talk to his biological father. Who so, was the restaurant owner, right? You know, and I, I can't remember enough details yeah. right now about the biological yeah. father. I just know that that was the case, and that's unfortunate. So if Steve were still alive, the next chapter of Steve Jobs' life, I think, would have been about reconciliation and sorting out his angry inner child and you know, a whole bunch of personal stuff that would have been another chapter for him that would have been quite fascinating. And, you know, and he, would, he, he could have become quite a symbol for um, uh, the uh, vacuity of materialism and the fact that money doesn't make you happy, etc. But even when he was uh, doing the book with Isaacson, from Steve's point of view, it was a propaganda exercise. Oh. So I've never read that book because I, I oh. knew, okay, this is just Steve being Steve, and this is not going to be an accurate history at all. Mm. So I'm, I'm kind of choosy about which of the uh, industry's historic works I consume. And you know, I'm, I'm a little frustrated that there's, there are still a lot of uns, untold story elements about what happened with personal computing, what happened with Apple, what happened with Steve. And of course, even more so about video games. It's even a more recent story. Let's let's move over to video games. So you um, you you have this playing card. You've got the football game, and tell us you know, tell the listener what's the big football game that you ended up producing. Of course, John Madden football. 
And my friends from childhood would say that Electronic Arts for me was entirely an exercise about making a football game that I could play with them and because it was made by my employees, rig it so that I would win. <laughs> That's their entire theory about it. And I think there's some truth in that, in that uh, I had a hobby passion for these you know, team sports right. games, particularly right. football and baseball, and very much wanted to make these really authentic computer experiences. Having failed as a teenager with that board game, I didn't want to fail the next time around. I thought, well, i got to get myself better prepared. I have to learn more about this. And from business school, I had gotten the idea that, you know, it's really hard starting a company. Yep. And you'd better have a really juicy, big idea that's going to blaze a new trail and that's going to be uh, an idea so juicy and ripe that you can build your company strategy and your competitive advantages around it. So the whole time I was at Apple, I'm thinking about that in the back of my mind, and I'm keeping track of what's going on in the gaming space, and I'm even helping and enabling some of the other uh, you know, entrepreneurial game developers and so on. I was invited to run a company even as early as 1980, and I joined the board of directors of that little company to help them. Uh, later on, did a distribution deal with them, and Electronic Arts sold their product. So I was kind of actively doing game-related stuff. And it was in that same time frame, you know, 80, 81, that I came up with the big idea. So I kind of in the back of my mind thinking, yeah, hey, uh, uh, you're going to probably still want to do this starting in 1982, but what's the big idea? Right, right. And the big idea was the software artist. And recognizing, I was really the first person that recognized that engineering had become an art form. Hmm and that the personalities of the best engineers and the right way to motivate them and to treat them and to help them be really <clears throat> productive as artists was to recognize that they were very much like uh, artists that made music exactly. and films and books yep. and so on. Yep. And I realized, yeah, nobody's thinking that way, nobody's talking that way, nobody's doing any of that. And when you have a really powerful idea, often the details just become obvious to you and they fall out very easily once you've got the core central idea. It's like when you, if you're gonna make Shrek and you say, hey, we're gonna take fairy tales and turn them upside down. Okay, so the hero's gonna be the ogre. You know, and then pretty soon all the exactly. jokes, all the jokes just roll right out. Exactly. You know? And it's a beautiful thing because the big idea is so good, right? And again, if, particularly if it hasn't been done before. So I began to realize that from working with these incredibly talented software developers at Apple that built a lot of the stuff that became famous and I'm talking about people like Bill Atkinson and Larry was, Tesler and various right, others. Right. And, you know, getting close with those guys and kind of seeing how that all uh, worked. And, you know, they were basically uh, very egocentric, creative people, just like an opera diva. <laughs> and I realized, okay, a lot of the way that Hollywood deals with their talent can be done with software engineering. And then I realized that, you know, probably a lot of the business practices and distribution and marketing methods probably are also applicable. So that became the fulcrum for everything about electronic cards was was viewed through that lens. So the model then was around the entertainment industry and I mean how you have the big studio system and you have products and I mean a product is a film and it's you've got development deals and you've got the team that comes together builds that thing and then they're gone but the studio is still there. Yeah, so if you, if you look at the big strategic pieces of it, again, I'm figuring out a lot of this while I'm still at Apple. Right. But the three big strategic 
principles of that strategy at the found when I founded Electronic Arts were number one, uh, elevating the developer to this sort of software artist concept and treating them that way, nurturing them and supporting that way. That way. <clears throat> the second piece being the tools, because nobody had the the uh, software development equivalent of a recording studio. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the music industry and everything that goes on in a recording studio and all the powerful tools and everything, tech there, yeah. we didn't have anything like that. And in fact, the early games that were made for the Apple II, you know, you had a, a kid at home on their Apple II trying to make that game essentially without any tools. It was basically the Stone Age. And so I, I thought, yeah, we're going to make the equivalent of a recording studio and have great software tools and hardware power and, and so on. And then the third part was uh, the concept of direct distribution. The, the big media companies all distributed as directly as possible as far out to the consumer that they could get. And I had already lived through the benefit of that at Apple because when I started at Apple, we were going through distributors. Right. And we had thousands of these mom-and-pop retail stores, but they all bought products from distributors, and then we only sold to six distributors around America. And it became very unwieldy, and it was holding us back. And around 1981, 80 to 81, we basically terminated the distributors and went direct to the retailers. Hmm. And it was a cluster. Wow. Because there was a huge amount of money involved. And some of the distributors didn't want to be eliminated, so there were lawsuits that dragged on for a while. And it was a very sudden change for Apple to to deal with. One day you have six customers, and the next day you have 4,000 customers. It was complete chaos. So even at that point at Apple, I made a mental note. If direct distribution is important, do it from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, Don't start this way and then have to have this kind of a disaster to, to get back to where you need to be. And that was another very unusual, unique thing at that time. Nobody did that with software of any kind. And a lot of the industry leaders, when I started doing it at Electronic Arts, predicted that I would fail and the company would fail because of that strategy. And it it became, of course, one of the strongest things about Electronic Arts. So fast forward some number of years, let's say just to 10 years ago, so the fast forward from that, you walk into CES and then you go see the game component of the Computer Electronics Show has gotten so big, 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. it spun out its own show called E3, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, right. which is just, I mean, staggering. The amount of money spent in video games eclipsed the entertainment industry, of which you modeled it on. Right. What do you think when you walk in there, you just kind of look around and knowing you were, you know, you were at ground zero for that? Yeah, well, in fact, for many years, I told people that we were making a new Hollywood hmm. Oh, so I'm not going to be the guy that's surprised that it gets bigger than <laughs> Hollywood. Got it. You know that was the plan, and I, I of course have all these quaint memories from the early days where, like the Game Developers Conference (GDC), you know, yep. draws around sure. 100,000 people yep. now. Yep. I remember when I went to the very first one of those, and there was just one room. It was slightly larger than the, this tiny little studio we're in right now, and we all fit in that room. <laughs> yep, and everybody knew everybody. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite something to behold. You don't really, uh, in the beginning, it's impossible to imagine it could get as big as yeah. it is. And so th- there's still a little bit of shock and awe, you know, just realizing, wow. 
as an entrepreneur, so now I want to just a little bit of time that we have left thinking about, we, we look at your pedigree and look at all the things that you've done and what got you to where you are, but you're not done yet by, by any stretch of the imagination. Just you, you've got ideas, you want to keep going. You, I, I have a sense you're in a give back mode a bit in terms of helping others. Yes. What, is there another big idea? I mean, you, you obviously, you, you told us earlier, you know, within five years this is going to happen, when this amount of time is going to happen. Is there a, a plan like that now for the next five years for trip? Well, I'm just as passionate as ever, and I have pretty much about the same energy level that I always had. I don't right now have a specific commercial idea that I cannot resist, and I think that's the way it is. If you're a painter, it's very hard to not paint. And if you're an entrepreneur with an idea that you really believe makes sense, it's almost impossible not to chase it. I currently don't have one of those. What, what I, when I think about the state of the universe, the state of the world, what, uh, what I see is that our generation is not going to fix global warming because of our value system. And when we say our generation, the boomers? I'm talking about adults. Right. Got it. The adults that have the government, the political, the economic power in the world today. We grew up in a culture of materialism, and even though science has now proven again and again that it doesn't make people happy, it sure as heck causes problems like global warming. And any eminent scientist that talks about the future or is asked about how long human beings are going to thrive, uh, the, the estimates vary from 100 years to 2,000 years, and in that range, we're talking about nothing. You know, you got a planet that could go for another few million years, and humans are heading for a cliff. So that's really kind of disturbing. And <clears throat> I would love to see the younger generations that come up shift from a value system based on materialism to one that's based on compassion. And this kind of reflects my own personal journey in terms of uh, having all the secular goals and achieving all that stuff and right. discovering that it didn't make me happy and that there was a lot of uh, emotional confusion going on for me and struggles about my identity and what to do about it. And I eventually did figure it out. And so I, I went from somebody who was, was egocentric to someone who's very compassionate and don't have all the toys I used to have. And I've discovered that, yeah, well, I didn't really need that stuff. That wasn't what it was about anyway. So I, 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 I'm interested in helping the younger generations make that same kind of shift, do it a lot earlier than I did. So that's a worldview shift. Yeah, so you know, then, then you've got some hope. If, if enough of the young talent develops that kind of a value system, then when they take over, as inevitably they will, then they could very well arrest global warming and you know, create, create a, uh, a better world that can go on uh, uh, quite a bit longer. So my last company kind of reflects this interest because I, I uh, built a game called IF, uh, also known as IF, the emotional IQ game. And this is a game that uh, teaches anybody that plays it, but it was, you know, it's targeted at, at uh, children. But anybody could play this game and come away with a better toolkit and skill set for improving their emotional intelligence. And it, it's one of those things where after a while, I discovered what emotional intelligence is, and I began to study it, and I realized that I didn't know most of it, that nobody had ever taught it to me. And I realized that my parents didn't know it, and my grandparents didn't know it. And I eventually realized that, well, yeah, 200 years ago, we knew it because we were living in a tribe, 
Right. And we hung out right. as children every day with our parents and with the tribal elders. We all went to religious services together. There's all this role modeling going on, and citizenship is fairly simple. And then you fast forward to today, a child isn't growing up alongside their parents. Their parents are either at work or they're missing. They go off to some big public school where all the ethnic and religious groups are all crammed in together, and there's a lot of bullying and uh, real serious challenges with school climate. So we've had multiple generations now that have lost this knowledge and therefore can't pass it on. Nobody goes to religious services. There's just a whole bunch of reasons why we've just gotten dumber about it over the last hundred years. And I, I found, uh, again, a serendipity thing. You know, about 20 years ago, there was a best-selling book called Emotional Intelligence, and that's when the topic first kind of got on radar. There's a school featured in that book that had, at that time, it still does have, the best teaching program around these skills and tools. Again, coincidentally, that's the school that all my children went to. And I, I kept learning more about Excellent. it because they were Excellent. exposed to it, and they developed the, the, the skills and tools. And it's kind of humbling when your children start correcting your behavior, but that was— you <laughs> I know, love that part. <clears throat> that was one of the ways that I realized, wow, uh, boy, this stuff's really cool, and uh, man, uh, I, I kind of need to go back to school. So making that game, for me, was going back to school— and in the same way that I made John Madden football, I thought, well, I'm going to go find the world's leading authorities, and I'm going to work with them, and they'll be my master teachers. And when you have to execute something into a product, I mean, you have to take lesson plans and design them into a game architecture and storyline, and then you have to have measurements or assessment right. to determine if people learned anything. And you're trying to do that in a game where that, so that nobody will smell the spinach and realize that they're doing curriculum. <laughs> it's a challenge. <laughs> Thank you for and, that. And as the architect of that, it it was it, it kind of required me to understand it. Right. And I spent three years doing it, so it was kind of like getting an advanced master's degree. And I was working with these really fabulous experts. Phenomenal. So it was a nice thing for me to do most recently to to add that piece to what I know. And the way I feel about it now is that uh, I have to help the nerds take over the world. There I'm pretty go. sure. That if we're going to solve these kinds of global issues, it's going to require nerd leadership, and the nerds, and I, you know, it takes one to know one. I mean, I'm a yep. lifelong nerd, yep. Yep. and we have certain strengths and weaknesses and vulnerabilities. But for the first time in human history, we are now fashionable. You're cool, right? <laughs> and and there's there's a lot of power uh, that nerds have right now, and and it's kind of unprecedented that you you look at the uh, the biggest nonfiction story in the movie theaters. It's about a nerd named Steve Jobs. And the best serious drama in the movie theaters right now is The Martian. Mm -hmm. They went to a lot of trouble in that movie to represent every ethnic group and both men and women as heroes. But the thing that is unprecedented, they are all nerds. So we've, we've come into the mainstream of society and culture. And even though it's still not really considered cool, so I was, I was giving a lecture uh, with John Greathouse over at the university a few weeks ago as part of their Distinguished Speaker Series. And there's an audience of mostly technical uh, people, uh, predominantly male, that are interested in entrepreneurship. And I asked, how many of you are nerds? And only about five hands went up. <laughs> so they're still embarrassed to admit it. Oh. <laughs> they're still thinking, man, that girl's not going to want to go out with me if I stick my hand up right now. <laughs> I love that. But you know, we, we've really got to leverage what, the, what nerds are capable of doing if we're going to fix these problems. 
This has been, I mean, I, I want to, ha- can we have you back on the show? Absolutely. Because uh, there were a lot of things that we didn't get into at all that I, I know you're a world expert on that I want to talk about, things about the future. We're at the end of our time. And one of the things we do, the thing we do is how do we kind of bookend this story and give it a title? How would, would we give this episode a name? What would we call it? And you get first dibs on that. Well, a big part of my story and stories like the story of Steve Jobs is basically adventures in the nerd kingdom. And, you know, all of us are um, on our own hero's journey and need to go from being a warrior to a prince or a princess and to establish a a kingdom. And really, that's what guys like Steve Jobs and I have done is uh, we built new industries and Again, it's all about the nerds because you know we created industries where they can work and thrive, and uh, you know, you know, develop their their capacity to you know serve humanity. And obviously, it it also turned into a whole lot of uh, video games. In my case, that nerds like to play, and and uh, it's a beautiful thing. Well, on behalf of nerds everywhere, <laughs> thank you. Uh, we wrote the business plan for Wavefront on an Apple II. There you go. And did all the graphics on an Atari. <laughs> so that, you know, when back in the day, 1983, mm-hmm. 1984, thank you so much. I, I just deeply appreciate this chance to get to talk to you and for our listener to get no more to know more about you. And uh, I think we will see you. Th- I know the UCSB talks are all recorded uh, on UCTV, so I'm sure that will eventually be on. So thank you very, very much for that. Um, Gosh, I'm, I'm, I still have 800 questions to ask. So um, thanks again to California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and & Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Pull String Press, for this great studio and to Cielo24, who provides the searchable captions for our show. By the way, Tripp, how can, where is the best place for people to learn more about you and about if, I mean, I, I want to go get that for my grandkids, but where, where's the best place uh, other than Wikipedia? No, I, I, don't, I don't think there's any one particular, say, web page that's perfect. But you, know, you, can, you can find the if game on the Internet. And you know, uh, there's, there's plenty of information about virtually any topic, including me. <laughs> Some of that. it is even true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward when that when that book comes out. We make sure we're part of the one small local stop on the book tour. There you go. So, Patrick, how could people help us? Well, as usual, our recommendation is always to uh, uh, give us a review, uh, send us an email, let us know uh, how well we've done. But if this is your first uh, opportunity to listen to the podcast, I would encourage you to go back through our back catalog and listen to some of the other interviews that uh, Mark has had with some very interesting, fascinating people that you will want to know better. So, and what else should they do, Patrick? Uh, just you know, get off your podcast right now and call your mom because she misses you. I know she does. So remember, we could use your support. So um, we also uh, we're listener driven. So if you've got an idea of somebody we should talk to, somebody you met had an interesting conversation, let me know. Mark at eight hundred five connect dot com, and we'll get them on the show. So until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for eight hundred five conversations. Mm-hmm.